It's 20 hundred in Beijing, midday in London, 13 hundred here in Davos, and 7 a.m. in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The briefing starts now. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from the World Economic Forum here at Davos. I'm Tom Webb. Coming up on today's program... If anyone thinks this is only about us, this is only about Ukraine, they are fundamentally mistaken. Following his address, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky's meetings take place on the sidelines of Davos. Is the endgame in his war being shaped by forces outside his control? Also on the show... The message here is really to tell the almost 3,000 participants that China is continuing to open, China wants to open, and China wants to engage with the world. China bids to woo back global elites at Davos without meeting the United States. I speak to one of its delegation about their priorities at the annual meeting. Leading economists call for private money to flow into green investments. We ask why nature-based solutions are being tipped to solve the climate crisis. And Carlotta Ribello is here. What have you got for us? Hi, Tom. Today might be a day all about the future of finance, but I'll be looking at what mayors and city leaders are discussing. There's a big conversation happening on securing smart cities and how to raise funds to improve technology. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Tom Webb. Thousands of global leaders have once again descended on snowy Davos for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. Now, as with every year, there are the public meetings and then there are the real ones behind closed doors that the attendees are talking about the most. With the inside scoop she's been pounding up and down the promenade all week with an ear to the ground is the journalist and host of the Stories of Our Times podcast for The Times and Sunday Times, it's Maveen Rana. Hi. Hello, how have you been? All right, I've been pounding the streets as you say and I haven't slipped yet. That's my triumph of the week. (laughs) And you've been keeping warm, I assume. Trying. (laughs) Now, we've heard from the Ukraine's President Zelensky yesterday calling for peace and not more weapons. But of course, his actual meetings are painting a more revealing picture about his presence here. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, his presence here itself is revealing. I mean, the whole of Davos stopped yesterday. Traffic and security was insane because Zelensky hasn't actually uh, attended Davos since the war broke out. He's always done a live link. The fact that he chose to come despite, you know, the security risks and everything else shows how desperate he is really now to win the West over and make sure he's still getting support because the war is nowhere near ending. There is a genuine fear, everyone you speak to here about Ukraine, real fear that there is a Trump presidency coming and that will pull the plug on a lot of Ukraine's aid. So he's already here trying to sort of, um, A, speak to the Americans and build rebuild relations and make sure that there are, there are a lot, you know, that you've got um, Anthony Blinken here, but you've also got a lot of senators and congressmen from the Republican Party too. So he's trying to make sure he's building alliances there but uh, and with, with the banking community. But also I think it's about working out a plan B. 
So if he's not going to get the money from America, where is it coming from? And the EU, um, Ursula von der Leyen's been here. She she did a speech yesterday too, um, are clearly very strongly supporting. She has problems of her own though, because Hungary, who are very friendly with Russia, aren't so keen. And there's been a lot of hints here, which is very interesting, that they would still move ahead with a big aid package for Ukraine, even if they had to do it without Hungarian approval. And that's very rare for the EU. You know, they always want to bring everyone with them. So that's how desperate they are to help. Uh, And you've also had Jens Stoltenberg, the the head of NATO here doing, um, again, lots of big sort of stump speeches trying to remind everyone that if Russia is seen to win this war, um, you know, it's bad for democracy, it's bad for the whole of Europe. So there's a real push, there's a sense of desperation in the air that they can't let this slip now. And this money, these meetings with big bankers, it's not about weaponizing Ukraine. It's more about rebuilding Ukraine. There's already a lot of talk about what happens after the war, even though nobody's quite sure when that will be, because obviously we've seen huge destruction. Uh, Ukraine's ability to survive as a, a country will depend on how much money and investment is coming in and how they're able to... Um, it, you know, they've lost so much in terms of agriculture as well. There's been sort of huge economic losses because of the war. So they really need to rebuild and work out how they can be an incredibly strong nation in the future to stop Russia wanting to invade them again. And other conflicts are dominating discussions here at Davos. Yes. All eyes are on officials from the Middle East. Now, Israel's president is here. So is the Qatari prime minister, along with a large delegation from Saudi Arabia. But who is meeting who if any meetings are happening at all? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, this Davos is really taking off at a time of huge global insecurity. Um, Everyone wants to know how to solve the crisis. The Israeli Prime Minister is here today. I don't know if he'll be meeting anybody from the rest of the Middle East because the optics for for the rest of the, you know, the Arab part of the Middle East would be so bad. Nobody wants to be seen uh, greeting him at the moment. You know, we know that the Saudis, the Bahrainis, the UAE were actually quite keen to move ahead with the Abraham Accords. But until something is done to stop the war, they can't be seen to be saying that. So we've had uh, the Qataris, we've had the, the Saudis making a lot of speeches saying nothing gets sorted. The Red Sea, the trouble in the Red Sea with the Houthis, nothing gets solved until we solve Gaza and until we stop the, the killing, call for, calling for an urgent ceasefire, which is really interesting. And, you know, the Saudis are one of the biggest presences here in Davos this year. It's so interesting to sort of see how important they are geopolitically. You know, they've got three big hubs along the promenade, which is like the main bit of Davos, where people are trying to sort of exert influence and show how important they are. The biggest building, which takes up almost a block, is Neom House, which is them plugging the future of this great, you know, this great new um, region that they're creating. And they've got so much invested in it. But, you know, if you look at a map, Neom is all along the Red Sea. So as much as they hate the Houthis, I mean, they were at war with them for many years, they're probably secretly slightly enjoying the fact that the West is now bombing them. They do want the bombing to cease because instability in the Red Sea makes their entire Neon project, which is, you know, the biggest resort. They're doing deals here for billions of dollars to build a ski resort there. It's also supposed to be a huge hub for technology and business. All of that goes away if there is war in the Red Sea. You know, who's going to want to invest or take a company there if the, if, if it's right on, on, a, on a war zone? And I should say one of the most generous houses on the promenade if you're looking for a hot chocolate or a soup during the cold. God, they're handing out fantastic sort of chai-flavoured hot chocolate and, and um, Swiss chocolates with dates. Great sort of mingling of both Switzerland and, and the Saudi tradition. Completely delicious. I urge anyone <laughs> to seek it out. Now, speaking of the houses on the promenade, a big new one 
AI house. We have been talking a lot about AI being the biggest discussion point here at Davos. Is it all hot air? Is it optimistic? Is it pessimistic? What's the feeling on the promenade? It's a bit of all of those. It's the thing everybody's talking about, because I think there's a sense that they've talked about it for years, but they're just reaching that point on the curve where where it's about to be exponential. AI is about to take over so many parts of our lives and they really sense it coming. And there is a sense that even though we've known it's coming, people aren't planning for it. So I've heard so many different figures, but lots of pretty apocalyptic ones about what it's going to do to jobs and how you're going to cope with sort of potentially 40% of people losing their jobs and not knowing how to reskill quickly enough. And, you know, we've already seen the sort of chaos that has politically. You know, nobody wants more instability, more polarised politics, which will come from people losing their jobs. But it's fascinating. I mean, you get so many experts here. I've had some of the best conversations with people who are investing in actually the promise of AI. So, you know, what it might do for medical science. You know, people have been saying it might, you know, you'll get a cure for cancer faster because it just improves the the sort of cycle of, of research. But, you know, there, there are some really fascinating discoveries here. I mean, a couple of years ago at Davos, all anyone was talking about was psilocybin and magic mushrooms and how that would revolutionise the medical world. This year, I'm hearing stuff which is all AI-based, but, you know, things like apps on phones, which would use light to um, light patterns and shapes to retrain your brain to, to cure an awful lot of disorders and um, uh, things that medicines aren't very effective at the moment. So you would, you would not need pharmaceuticals at all. You'd just be using AI that is entirely adapted to your own brain to try and retrain it. I mean, that stuff is hugely exciting. It feels like it's coming much sooner than anyone thought. And that's the really interesting part of Davos is, is the, the great sort of research projects that are going on and people here who are collaborating on what AI might look like. Well, let's keep the optimism going. Finally, we mentioned big presences here on the promenade. India, once again, dominating the houses. Is it finally now the favoured destination for global investment? It's making a lot of speeches asking for it. And it's really interesting this year. You don't just sort of see uh, India as a presence. You actually start to see like states within India saying, come and invest here. We are the most open place. I mean, I'll have to say that they'll be fighting China for that. You know, the Chinese premier was here, made a speech about how open they are to investment and how great a location they are and how, you know, their middle class is going to double to 800 million, they say, within a couple of years. And so why would you not want to be part of that market? So there's a lot of people who do seem to be doing far better with economic growth than the rest of Europe, than Europe is certainly, who are making their pitch while they're here. Manveen Rana, thanks so much for joining us. Now in London, here's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. Israel claims it has killed a Hamas member who it believes was responsible for interrogating individuals suspected of espionage in the southern Gaza Strip. In a post on Telegram, the IDF said that an Israeli aircraft had killed Bilal Nofal, a development which they believe will significantly impact on Hamas's capacity to develop and enhance its capabilities. Iran says it has hit a militant group in western Pakistan, its third airstrike on another country this week after earlier attacks on targets in Iraq and Syria. Islamabad called the strike, which killed two children and injured three others, an illegal act and warned of serious consequences. It comes at a time of growing tension in the Middle East with the war between Israel and Gaza and attacks on Red Sea shipping by Houthi rebels. 
The first prosecution witness to testify in a national security case against Hong Kong media tycoon Jimmy Lai said on Wednesday that Lai instructed him to encourage people to join pro-democracy protests in 2019. Lai pleaded not guilty to two charges of conspiracy to collude with foreign forces and a lesser charge of conspiracy to publish seditious material. And Japan Airlines has named its first female president, a former cabin attendant who rose through the ranks to senior management. The move is being touted as a symbolic step forward in a country with a large gender pay gap. Mitsuko Totori will become president on the 1st of April. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thanks, Emma. Chinese Premier Li Chiang has been assuring investors and politicians here at Davos that the world's second largest economy has huge potential and remains an important engine of global growth. That's despite the serious economic headwinds the country has seen over the past year. Part of his large delegation to the forum includes Henry Wang, founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization. I sat down with him and begun by asking why China had decided to have such a substantial presence this year. This year, China has actually uh, recovered from COVID. I mean, last year when the Davos was held, it was a bit of uh, too short notice. People uh, was planning uh, not in time. But this time, I think with Chinese, the new premier come, you know, the premier that just uh, inaugurated the last year. So with a strong delegation presence, I think that shows China support China. Davos is a symbol of globalization. And uh, this is important that China is for it and China would support it and China is actively participate. And can we expect any high-level meetings between China and the United States? I think they have a lot of high-level meetings already happening. I mean, the President Xi, they met President Biden in San Francisco just in November, last November. And also I know that China Minister of uh, uh, Department of Liaison was just met uh, Secretary Blinken in Washington about a week ago. So, so I think there's constantly high-level meetings. But I don't know. I mean, Premier Li has a very tight schedule. He actually uh, visited Switzerland and he's going to Ireland after that. So have only three days out, outside China. So I think that, you know, the message here is really to tell the almost 3,000 participants that China is continuing to open, China wants to open, and China wants to engage with the world. Uh, as far as the high-level meetings, China has many platforms, and China uh, probably not doing that only in Davos, that they're doing in many places. What is China's response to Europe's de-risking policy towards China? Well, I think that that's actually quite confusing. I mean, we had for initially decoupling and then uh, switch to de-risk, de- and then particularly the, the EU policy on China, you have a partner, you have a also competitor, and then you have a systematic rivalry. You know? So basically, it's like a, you're turning on a green light, yellow lights, uh, red lights at the same time. <laughs> People, you know, sending a very confusing signal. I mean, we should de-risk from climate change. We should de-risk from future AI threats and uh, and pandemic like that. We should not, you know, countries should not de-risk from each other. We we should not really overemphasize security issues. We should really work on the economic and investment, trade. So those things can really help us to fight all the risk that we may have for the human beings. Rather than we, we prevent from each other, we, <laughs> we are really uh, view each other as enemy and rivalry, and that's not healthy. And another big word that we're seeing is deglobalization. Are we seeing a policy from the United States and other markets of deglobalization, particularly with trade and China? Yeah, I think that's the other thing uh, we've been experiencing. Of course, uh, we see uh, deglobalization going on. I mean, uh, since probably President Trump, uh, when he was in power in 2017, he started a trade war. 
and putting a lot of tariffs on, on the exchanges of the goods. So decoblazing is not really healthy, and that has actually accelerated the widening gap between uh, you know, uh, countries, uh, developing countries, also within U.S. and uh, many developed countries, the, the rich and the poor, I mean, the gap is also getting bigger. So, so I think th- this is not the way to go because the whole world needs to lift it out of this COVID, lift out of the you know, financial crisis and, uh, and at that issues. We need to actually work with each other. We need a strong multilateralism and uh, global governance uh, you know, enhancement rather than we are fragmented, we are all, uh, you know, emphasis on security and drive up the military budget of all the countries. That money could be used to, for the ordinary people to in- improve their lives, but then we spend so much money on the military and security, which is a huge waste, and that's that going to slow down the global economy, and overemphasize that is really not healthy. So I think, you know, the narrative has to be right. We, we need to really think about the human beings as the common you know, good for the world, and we have to really help each other, support each other, and also, you know, going through all those crises that we have facing for the mankind, rather than we really view each other as a rivalry. So that's not a good, good sign. And finally, speaking about working together, China have been developing carbon neutral technology, a lot of solar power, the EV market has boomed. There is concern that maybe China might use this to their advantage because other countries are so reliant on this technology. Is that the case or is that doom-mongering? There's some concern there, but I don't think it's uh, is really justified because uh, China is really the biggest producers of clean energy, clean vehicles, and uh, uh, solar panel, hydropower, or wind power, which is okay. I mean, China has developed that kind of um, uh, market applications, and then all the multinational there, for example, all the German and the European automakers in China, they have the state-of-the-art technology there. They have the biggest R&D center there. They develop this uh, clean vehicle, uh, like Tesla. Half of Tesla EV car produced in China because China has the upper stream, downstream, the whole value chain is so resilient. And uh, so that's very helpful for them to uh, develop this market. So in order for them to really get the most advanced technology on those tech issues, they have to be in China to harness that. So that's why all the companies are resistant of this decoupling of the risk because they felt if they... I was speaking at the German parliament just uh, two or three months ago, and we have the German uh, automaker Daimler Mercedes was speaking there. And they said the risk, the biggest risk is not going to China, rather than view China as a risk. So I think he's very, uh, very right. So what I think is that we should really have all corporations, we should all work together. Like Tesla, you know, half of the EV car out of China export to the Europe is made by Tesla, not by Chinese company. <laughs> so we have to be clear on that. But then it's maybe the tariff is aimed at China, which is a, a wrong approach, because there's a lot of EV cars made by BMW, Mercedes, or other uh, European automakers. They sell back to the European market, but not just only Chinese EV cars made by the Chinese companies. So, so I think we have to really clarify that. And, and finally, I think that, uh, you know, we are facing this uh, climate change. We, we're already falling behind the Paris uh, Agreement schedule. We are already having this uh, devastating effect of a climate change affecting us every day. So if there's a technology available, if there's a, a, a most if cost-effective uh, uh, way of doing that, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Let's use it. Let's harness that. Let's really welcome that. Rather than say, oh, because this is from China, uh, we have to stop it. We have to uh, investigate it. We have to put uh, uh, you know, invisible tariff uh, on that or, t- or uh, trade barriers on that, which is not right. I think that we have to work together and uh, 
you know, really have a, uh, help each other. And then uh, I think if we can cl- improve the climate, China can do better and all the companies can do better also in China. Let's, let's revive this China-EU climate, uh, no, uh, this uh, investment treaty that we signed uh, two years ago, which hasn't been effective. So many companies can benefit from that, from both European and China. Henry Wang speaking to me earlier today. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio, broadcasting live from the World Economic Forum in Davos, where, despite the pressing issues such as the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, an AI revolution and a cost-of-living crisis, the climate and nature emergencies remains high on the agenda, as leaders realise that both will significantly exacerbate other risks. Well, joining me now in the studio is Eric Berglov, Chief Economist for the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and a former director of the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome to our chalet, Eric. How has the forum been for you so far? It's been very good. Uh, it's, the weather has cooperated. Uh, it's been a beautiful setting. Uh, no, it's, it's been good. You know, we are still some time to go, but it's always hard to really assess the full, the full significance of a particular uh, Davos, but... Uh, so far, so good. It's early days, but yeah. you have come before many times. Yeah. How has your experience been this time in relation to climate and nature on the agenda here at Davos? Well, I think, as you said in your intro, the, it's clear that the conflicts in the world are you know, on people's mind and obviously also what's going on in terms of many elections, particularly the US election is competing for, for, for airtime here. But I, I do think that there is a continuous focus on this and many people who are involved in, in uh, climate and in nature uh, are here and are, are discussing and already we've had some uh, you know, very good discussion. I think what's really happening there is that nature and climate are now merging and we are looking at this in a, in a, together, and, and that I think is is a very important thing. Of course, there are sometimes some conflicts in the use of of land, you know, between renewables and 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 uh, biodiversity areas. But on the whole, it's a good thing that these two issues are now coming together. And it's something that you have spoken a lot about mm-hmm. in your current role: nature as infrastructure. Now, that's a concept mm-hmm. that you're very passionate about. Can you explain more about what it means? Well, nature as infrastructure is really to send a clear signal that nature is our most valuable, our most important, and uh, infrastructure, and you know, one that sustains life on Earth. And if we can start thinking about nature as infrastructure and and treat it as infrastructure and how we value it, how we uh, find financial instruments uh, to, to uh, make sure that we take care of nature. And, and, you know, we are facing a real nature crisis. It's been slow in coming and people have not paid so much attention, but luckily I think it's now coming on policymakers' minds. So if we do think about nature as infrastructure, how can that help countries around the world close their infrastructure gaps in a more sustainable way? Well, in a way, it actually it's increases the gap because there is so much to do when it comes to, to, uh, to uh, nature. And, you know, what, what really is different about nature as infrastructure compared to some of the other approaches to nature is that, you know, we are really thinking about the full potential of nature. We know that nature can deliver more 
than the, the most obvious things uh, that we see around us. You know, we talk about mangrove, for example. Mangrove, you know, is very important uh, in many parts of the world, protecting against flooding and, and so on, and it captures uh, CO2. But it also is very good for fish breeding. It, we turned out, and we looked at it now in our report, uh, it's good for, for bees, and, and, and the, the honey from, from uh, bees uh, in, in mangrove uh, in Egypt is, is very valuable, and it gives incentives to people to take care of, of nature. So it's really about working very closely with science to understand what is the full potential of nature and make sure that we value it. And, of course, that's the real challenge. How do we place uh, the right value on, on nature? And that's what we all have to work on. Well, that was going to be my next question. I mean, what type of questions are involved in defining the value of nature? Yeah. No, so this is absolutely, you have to think about uh, many things that you have to think about how you, if you take into account when you look at, for example, GDP uh, or countries, you, we have looked at the economic capital we are building, but at the same time, we have done this at the cost, at the expense of natural capital. If you look at the total kind of uh, um, balance, uh, you, we need to reevaluate what is what does growth mean, what is productivity and so on. It opens up a lot of opportunities for countries that are you know quite poor today and maybe debt ridden to use the f- fact that they have very rich nature resources and, and can use that to have uh, better credit conditions, maybe uh, have these debt for nature swaps where you trade debt for promises to take care of nature. Of course, ultimately, it's how you value nature in individual projects. And actually, in this report that, that you uh, referred to, these called Nature's Infrastructure, we do apply a new methodology for assessing a particular project that we, is in our pipeline. And it tries to expand what we usually use is cost-benefit analysis to include what is the value of the services that this ecosystem, in this case, a, a wetland, what does it provide? And it's many things beyond just the fact that it, in, in this case, it was the project is about uh, flood protection. But actually, when you start looking at what the wetland provides in terms of other services, in terms of agricultural services, in terms of uh, pollination services, in terms of, of uh, recreational services, all those things need to be valued. And that's the methodology that we need to imply across all kinds of projects. Well, it's clear from the sheer number of things that you mentioned, there is a high value attached to this. Why is there currently so little investment in nature-based solutions? Because uh, I think we haven't properly valued, we haven't had maybe the right um, uh, incentives to, to appreciate it. And, you know, I've come to the same place for the last 55 years or so, and I've seen how the, in, it is in southern Sweden, and, and I've seen how, how the biodiversity has has uh, been been uh, reducing all the time it's actually now down by 60 or 70 percent about the same as as the rest of the world and when you have it takes some time before you really take in what's going on and i think that's what's happening right now well finally then speaking about developing countries it's hugely expensive to make a green transition particularly in those regions mm. you mentioned incentives can you think of any incentives or what incentives should there be for developing nations well i think developing nations it's a huge opportunity for them to to look you know they have not had the resources to destroy the nature that we have as we have done you know in many parts of, of the advanced uh, world and that is the real opportunity the the current uh, g20 presidency brazil you know has 
a huge interest in this. They developed a, a, a model or a, a way of thinking uh, about the, they call it the bioeconomy or bioecological uh, um, economy. And that thinking about Amazonas, for some, uh, you know, as a huge potential resource or for the world, already very valuable, but we need to find ways of fully appreciating the, the value that it contributes to the Latin America, but to the whole world. Eric Berkloff, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally today, it's not just world leaders who are present here at the summit. Mayors and other local authorities are also in the Swiss alpine town of Davos to meet with private companies, NGO representatives and other civic leaders. Monocle's senior foreign correspondent, Carlotta, joins me now with more on this. Hello, Carlotta. Hi, Tom. My chalet mate. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. You can't get rid of me this week. <laughs> now, Carlotta, why is WEF's annual meeting a good platform for urban leaders? Great question, Tom. You know, cities are on the front lines of global challenges. You, they represent more than 80% of global GDP, which is generated in cities. So the success, uh, sustainability and resilience of global economies around the world really depends on uh, urban ability, um, on our urban environment's ability to be uh, indeed resilient. Now, this is a great platform for both private and public sector to come together. And while, yes, uh, a lot of world leaders come here and dominate the headlines. There are several local leaders as well. These could be mayors or representatives from local authorities, from tourism boards, which is also quite crucial. There is a discussion happening on the challenges posed by uh, over-tourism. Um, you know, it is something that needs to be addressed. Many cities depend on tourism to survive, and uh, that means as well that country's economy is reliant on tourism. But if it's not done in a correct way, uh, it severely impacts um, the urban environment negatively. So that's, uh, just, that's just a snapshot of why this, is a rem this remains to be um, a, a pivotal uh, summit for city leaders as well. So who have you managed to speak to so far? A couple of people. And it's interesting as well to see how it's not just exclusive to world leaders, to, uh, to mayors, to, to have this preoccupation and worry about what happens in cities. One person that we've heard from uh, was Arancha Gonzalez. Now, she is the former Spanish foreign minister, but she is also speaking uh, in a panel that is related to mobility. And uh, she was talking to me about, you know, the challenges when it comes to climate change and mobility, the importance of decarbonizing the sector. And then this goes beyond that. Then it touches upon the auto industry and the private companies here represented, represented and the investment they're trying to bring and what partnerships they can forge with cities to, you know, think about that. Another person who's been focused on mobility uh, is the mayor, Eric Johnson. He is the mayor of Dallas in the United States. Uh, funny enough, he, funnily enough, he is the only American mayor present here at Davos, which tells you a lot. Now, his city might not be the first one that comes to mind when you think about um, the revolution on urban mobility. Uh, it was a city, it is a city that was built with the car in mind, but he is taking part in sessions about uh, decongesting and how narratives around that, not just legislation, but forward-looking ways of thinking about the car uh, actually can improve his city for the better. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. Dallas is a city that was built for the automobile. 
And so it's a little bit ironic that I'm talking about decongestion because you don't really think of Dallas as a city that's struggling with congestion. But this is more of a forward-looking conversation we're going to be having on Thursday. And I don't want to ruin it for folks. I want them to actually come. You know, we're planning for a future where online shopping and, and the delivery services associated with that are going to play a greater and greater role in creating more congestion. We're finding more vehicles are on the road now to satisfy everybody's demand for Amazon and online shopping and in grocery shopping and all those types of things. So that's kind of what this conversation we're going to have on Thursday is about is how that's going to change things. But looking back on the conversations we've been having, you know, Dallas is a city that was built for the automobile and it's almost 400 square miles. I mean, it's a very large landmass. And so people have lived far apart and spread out for a long time. And we're trying to get people to rethink where they live and, and how they live. And so that means our central business district is getting a lot more focus. We want people living closer to where they work. And that's what we're finding younger people want anyway. Goldman Sachs is investing $500 million in a new downtown campus. It's 800,000 square feet. It's going to be open in 2027. They're building it for their next generation of bankers who are saying, we want to live in a place like Dallas where we get that quality of life, that value. But we don't want to be in a suburban office park. We don't want to be in some outer ring suburb. We want to be in the heart of the city where we can walk to a basketball game. We can walk to a, a bar or restaurant, and then we can walk upstairs to our condo or apartment. And that's the kind of Dallas that we're building. Eric Johnson there, the mayor of Dallas, speaking to me a bit earlier. Now, Tom, he mentioned their quality of life. And this is, of course, a topic that relates to a lot of different parts of the conversations happening on urbanism. Uh, right now, this very minute, uh, they're more or less halfway through the mayor's roundtable, which is happening at the Congress Center. And now this is gathering all the mayors that are present here at Davos. It is behind closed doors, uh, but is a, a really key session for them to learn from one another and realize how, you know, with the collaboration from them themselves, their counterparts, and the private sector, cities can create indeed uh, programs that benefit uh, their residents and increase um, uh, quality of life. Uh, just some other snapshots of the conversations happening on cities. There is um, a session on healthy cities and the importance of bringing the private sector along, also on urban deliveries and that last mile delivery solution, which, you know, by 2030, 36% more delivery vehicles are expected to be on our roads. So we need to plan for cities uh, with deliveries in mind and how that might affect uh, residents. Those are just some of the discussions happening today on how cities can create resilient local economies and uh, help boost quality of life for all. Carlotta Ribello, I will see you back at the chalet. Thank you very much. And that's all for this special edition of The Briefing at the World Economic Forum. It was produced by Carlotta Ribello and Christy O'Grady here at Davos. And our studio manager back in London was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. We will be live from our pop-up radio studio here in Davos, located at Hub Culture Chalet on the Promenade. I'm Tom Webb. Goodbye and thanks for listening.